0: Welcome, everyone, to our Capitalism, Nature, Socialism podcast. We're really honored today to have with us members of the Emergency Committee for Rojava Network, who are going to talk to us about the struggle in Rojava, what the updates are, and what it is that they do in their network and the importance of their work. We are here with Anya and Optikin from the ECR, who are going to tell us about the work that they do together with this history of the Rojava struggle and why it's important for the left to understand it, to support it, and what that means for struggles wherever it is that we are. Welcome so much, Anya and Altiken.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
0: We wanted to begin. If you could just give us a brief background because not many of our listeners may be in tune with what's going on in Rojava what the Kurdish struggle just writ large is, and we wonder if maybe we can start off with that a little bit
2: you want to start
1: us off out again? Okay. <laughs> well, I was just uh, following the news and heard about uh, recent attacks. Turkey is actually intensifying the attacks as we speak here. Uh, it is a dirty war in some respects. So this is not like the invasion, you know, of Afrin or. Uh, uh, Serekaniye, Rasal Ain, with its Arabic name, or uh, Teltamer. These are basically places in the western and eastern part of Rojava, which Turkey invaded about a year ago and two years ago. Actually, Afrin is all, almost uh, three years ago now. And uh, uh, they have been using. Uh, Drone attacks uh, towards Kobani and uh, Ionisa. These are all towns. Kobani is known from, from the struggle from 2012, 2013, 15, 16, all, you know, it's a constant struggle going on. So, and we have been very worried about uh, possibly another invasion because Turkey was trying to establish a buffer zone roughly 50 kilometers from the state border going south into Syria. And they have invaded parts of it, about one fifth of it is right now under Turkish control. Turkish control and their mercenaries mostly. And uh, they have been sending troops from Turkey, but also a lot of mercenaries. One of them is uh, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham. It's basically, you know, uh, uh, I think it means uh, cleaning Damascus or saving Damascus or something uh, along those those lines in Arabic. Uh, And they have been doing lots of atrocities against the local population. Actually, the second invasion of uh, Russell Aynes started with the killing of uh, Avrin Halef, who was the, one of the co-chairs of the new Syria party, which was uh, trying to establish a more democratic society with part the participation of all ethnic groups in Syria. And they murdered her on that uh, main road, the M5. Uh, uh, highway in just where that 50 kilometer line goes, basically, is this highway. And Turkey is controlling parts of that highway as, 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 as we sit here today. So our biggest worry was really starting, Turkey starting in another large-scale invasion into northern Syria. It didn't happen because of the different uh, parties involved in this conflict being Russia, US, France, UK, they all have soldiers in this region still in different numbers. Russia is a lot more presented than the others Then comes the US and then come the other two. And also there are uh, some troops, Iranian troops or troops supported by Iran, and obviously the Assad government is very much present in the re- region. Actually they have two garrisons directly in Rojava in Kamishlo in a second. So that's basically what the you know the short summary of, of the situation as I know it. And Anya would you like to add anything or
2: I, I think I would like to add some more positive stuff you know to yeah. kind of this dire picture. <laughs> Quite serious it is quite serious and we you know are constantly worried about the developments but the good news uh, is that the revolution continues right so despite all of these obstacles and challenges and uh, life threats uh, the people of Rojava, they continue on their track of implementing this uh, the, the ideology that they call democratic confederalism right uh, and as you may have heard uh, which uh, Encompasses principles of democratic, of direct democracy, pluralism, social ecology, women's uh, emancipation, communal economy. So this is all still happening, but they are facing a lot of challenges. And as Alpikin just outlined, of course, the threats by Turkey probably is the most uh, uh, serious uh, existential threat to people of Rojava right now, which also undermines the revolution because it. Uh, sinks the morale of people, right? Uh, They're under constant threat of being killed, assassinated, right? Attacked. Uh, But there are other challenges as well. Uh, You know, the infrastructure has been devastated by years of of, of war. Um, There's an embargo, economic embargo, they are not able to import, uh, you know, the equipment or the resources that they need, especially Right now, with the pandemic, it's been a real hassle for them to get the very few uh, COVID vaccines that they were able to get, which are you know, absolutely not sufficient. So there are a lot of challenges, but uh, the people are, the movement uh, continues and the struggle goes on.
0: Thank you so much for those updates. It's, it's always really important for us to recognize that a lot of the movements that we admire and we hear about, you know, like the Kurds and the Zapatistas. They're they're under attack all of the time. And in and, and even though they're under attack, they continue building. So mm-hmm. I, yeah, so 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 those are the things that that I think are are really key for us to recognize and to never forget about because building something else is so it's so threatening to the status quo that you're going to get attacked. And so to, to do this kind of movement work, you need to expect that. And at the same time, we need to keep building and also building solidarity networks of, uh, of, of support uh, with other struggles. And I think that's what's so important with, um, with your organization, the Emergency Committee for Rojava, which I'd love to talk uh, about so that our listeners can learn more about. And I wonder, though, before we get there, if we can give maybe an outline of what the Rojava struggle is. I think that many of our listeners maybe have heard about the Kurds, maybe have heard about the Kurds as people who don't have a state. I think for the left, the people who don't have a state in that part of the world are the Palestinians. And so Palestine has gotten a lot of a lot of um, very well-deserved uh, uh, respect and recognition from a lot, of, a lot of people all over the world for how they're holding down their struggle. But something that we forget a lot of the time is that there are many people in the world who didn't get their state. I mean, we can talk about Native Americans throughout the, all of the Americas who are living in someone else's state, not their own. Uh, and for the Middle East or Southwest Asia, as that, as that region is called, their Eastern Mediterranean, it's become something of a, of, a, of a difficulty to build solidarity between the Kurdish movement and the Palestinian movement. Uh, and I think that just just a very brief mental map of what Kurdistan is, like we see that Kurdistan is, is, is a region that part of it is in what became the state of Turkey, what became the state of Syria, what became the state of Iraq and what became the state of Iran. I don't know if there's a fifth one, but there, I don't know if I missed any, but uh, for international solidarity, this can become really tricky. And I think about how, like with Palestine, a lot of these regimes, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Iran, all four of them have been very anti-Zionist verbally. Uh, And so maybe that's been a reason why it's been difficult for the Palestinian movement to show solidarity with, with Kurdistan. Um, Although, although there does exist solid, there has existed solidarity underground since forever because the Palestinian movement is not just one, just like the Kurdish movement is not just one. And, and I think that another way that we've heard of the Kurds, especially in the United States is the Kurds in Iraq that work with the United States and I wonder if maybe we can give an outline of, of, of what's going on like what's going on with the Kurds who are they. What's their struggle? How has their struggle transformed? Because I think that this is a reason why we're even talking because their, their struggle transforms so much. And then, and then I wonder if we can then get uh, into, then why is international solidarity important? If we can get maybe a little bit of that history or that mental map. And, and if I drew that mental map incorrectly, please, please definitely correct me on that.
1: Well, I can jump in there and give a little bit of the geography and history background regarding that. Uh, The four states you mentioned, definitely correct. Until recently, even I didn't know, there was a significant group of Kurdish people in Turkmenistan, basically between the border, between Iran and Turkmenistan. There is almost a million people living there of Kurdish descent. This is not a traditional area for them to be, but you know, through this, all, all these wars and deportations, etc., a significant group of Kurdish people landed in that region, and they still live there. Many people don't even know about this. There, another region is, it's known because of another conflict, and the only Kurdish state which existed for a short time at the end of the First World War, the Mahabad Republic was in the region north of uh, Iranian Azerbaijan and south of the Soviet Azerbaijan at that time. That was the Mahabad Republic. It it didn't survive very long. It was just one and a half years, I think. But uh, the place known as the Lachin Corridor, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, the enclave the Armenian enclave in Azerbaijan, is also a Kurdish area that that, that was actually at one time, majority Kurdish and the place known as Red Kurdistan from 1917 when the Soviet Union was founded is in that latching corridor, that was Red Kurdistan. That was the autonomous Republic of Kurdistan within Soviet Union. They got rid of that in the 1930s for political reasons. Stalin was playing as peons there back and forth. And there was this creating the Azerbaijan, the division of Azerbaijan between the British influence in Iran and the Soviet influence in Northern Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is also a divided country still today. (laughs) Divided people at least. So, and that, you know, when we talk about our region, these mix of ethnicities and movement of ethnicities from one place to another. For example, the Assad people will tell you, the Kurds are not originally from here. They they came here later, which is historical truth. If you go far away into the 18th century and beginning of the 19th century, but there have been movements and they had to settle there because they were driven from other places into Northern Syria, which is not a traditional Kurdish place. But today, about 5 million Kurds live there. So, you know, what are you gonna do? <laughs> Assad's solution, in this case, uh, later years of Hafez al-Assad was to take their citizenship away, making them stateless people. <laughs> so and turkey is a completely different story founding of the republic in the early 1920s after the falling apart of the ottoman empire the first turkish national assembly founded in 1920 has actually official representatives from kurdistan they are members of parliament from Kurdistan. This is how they are called. <laughs> and two years later, that all disappears. It's completely eradicated. Kurdistan doesn't exist. There are no Kurds. There are Mountain Turks. You know, the, the whole policy completely changes. It's, it's completely erased of uh, Turkish history books. It's not mentioned anymore. And then there are uprisings in the early 20s in the province of Agri, which is a mountain Ararat, basically between Armenia, Azerbaijan in that corner again. There is the Sheikh site uprising, which they both end, ended with those people being arrested, killed, executed actually. And then in the 30s, there are more uprisings. So basically from 1917, end of the war, of the Ottoman Empire in that region, with the British mandate in Iraq and the French mandate in Syria and Lebanon. This was basically one big blob at that time. The British mandate also in Palestine. That that's where the actually the sad story of Palestine starts too, because after that it comes to the division and the, you know you know Nakba. Thirty years later, <laughs> so. These are all convoluted, and they are all one part of a big picture of the colonial, colonization of what we call the Middle East today, West Asia. That's, that's basically the big picture, right? It, it goes all the way from the Caucasian mountains all the way to Egypt. That, that entire area has been divided, and people pushed around, moved around. And that's basically the history of Kurdistan in recent times in the last hundred years, in the last century, is all convoluted in that. There is no clear line where you can say, okay, the Kurdish people live here. Because in today's Turkey, a lot of Kurdish people live in Western Turkey, in the big five cities, Istanbul, Izmir, Ankara, Adana, Bursa, Mersin. This is like, they are all in the West because they have been partially deported, partially internally displaced is what the UN says, but under pressure, obviously, because their villages have been burned, right? Or they have been really displaced when well, after the Darsim uprising, a lot of those people have been displaced by the Turkish army and planted in the Western part of the country as a minority. So uh, this is basically what I know about the, you know, rough historical background of how we ended up in today, where we have these four pieces of Kurdistan in Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. But there is also an enclave in Turk- Turkmenistan another enclave in Azerbaijan in both parts of it. So <laughs> complicated picture. Anya, would you like to add?
2: Maybe a little bit more on the recent history.
1: Yeah.
2: the origins of the statelessness of the Kurds. And I think, you know, we cannot overemphasize that it is a legacy of Western imperialism in the region, right? So all the Western powers that are continue being involved in the region, they carry responsibility for all the conflicts and genocides, uh, right? And wars and displacements um, that have been uh, uh, taking place uh, in the Middle East. And Kurds, obviously, as you Kiki mentioned, are not the only persecuted and uh, marginalized, right? And the uh, people who are denied uh, uh, even existence uh, as an ethnic group. Uh, but sort the more recent history, um, Altekin mentioned some of the earlier uprisings uh, by the Kurds resistance uh, you know, against uh, being colonized by regional powers by these uh, four nation states after the uh, British and the French uh, carved up um, the the uh, former Ottoman Empire. And then uh, some of the latest uh, phase of the Kurdish resistance uh, that's relevant to what's happening today in Rojava starts uh, really in the 1970s or even in 19, uh, late 1960s in Turkey when there is an. Um, uh, surge, uh, in leftist uh, organizing uh, by uh, Turkish leftists uh, and the Kurdish uh, movement uh, in its current iteration emerges, emerges out of that uh, sort of global moment, right? Of the 1960s um, um, resistance. And uh, they, uh, the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers Party, um, uh, which here, uh, you know, uh, was founded in Turkey by uh, the Kurds of Turkey, right? So they emerged as a Marxist-Leninist uh, party uh, that uh, embraced, uh, they chose to engage in armed struggle, anti-colonial armed struggle against the Turkish state for you know, Kurdish Kurdish, Self determination uh, from a Marxist perspective, right? So they didn't only oppose the Turkish state state and attack it, they also opposed uh, the Kurdish bourgeoisie, right, that was collaborating with the Turkish state and attacked them as well, um, especially in its early years. Uh, But in any case, Kiki, you mentioned that uh, they uh, underwent an ideological transformation. And it's actually uh, the theme of our next reading group. Uh, for those who are listening, you should check out our Facebook page or website uh, for the information for that. So yes, there was an ideological transformation uh, in the 90s when the PKK uh, started uh, sort of, uh, criticizing the Soviet model of socialism, criticizing the um, you know, Marxist-Leninist uh, approach to organizing. Um, sort of the centralized country um, uh, way of uh, organizing a party or political organization. Um, Another element was the uh, greater women's participation and they were pushing for increased democracy inside the PKK, right? Especially along gender lines. Um, And So the result uh, of those, uh, the factors uh, was that PKK, the especially uh, in particular Abdullah Öcalan, who is the uh, PKK's uh, leader and uh, kind of the main ideologue of the Kurdish movement, uh, he sort of produces uh, uh, it's a completely different ideology, philosophy that he calls uh, democratic confederalism uh, in the late '90s, where he um, you know, rejects the need for an independent state, independent Kurdish state, right? And uh, sort of reworks, uh, completely reworks uh, the, uh, you know, the aspirations uh, of the movement, right? So now the revolutionary goal includes uh, changes er along the gender lines, right? So women's liberation becomes the centerpiece of this philosophy. Um, He recognizes uh, and centers the need for uh, transformation of our relationship with nature, along the lines of the philosophy of social ecology as proposed uh, by uh, Murray Bookchin. And we know that um, uh, Abdullah Ojalan was uh, greatly uh, influenced uh, by him. Um, uh, It includes uh, the emphasis on pluralism and uh, the movement specifically Know, emphasizes that that's a, that's a necessary element for their region, right? Because you have this uh, amalgam of different ethnic and religious groups that have been pitted against each other by the regional, by the Western powers, right? That a lot of whom, as we just talked, discussed uh, have been marginalized through the creation of um, ethno-nationalist states. So um, for them, for their region, it's, it's an important element of a, a revolutionary. Uh, philosophy, right? How can these different groups coexist together without uh, exclusion and marginalization? And uh, of course, sort of the um, anti-capitalist uh, uh, aspect of this struggle uh, has not disappeared, but it sort of transformed. So from more orthodox Marxism that they the PKK subscribed early on, uh, now... Uh, they changed the vision, and uh, kind of their vision for economic for transformation of economic structures is to uh, create cooperative economy, cooperative economy, uh, and uh, kind of limit um, the the size of uh, how much one person can own or how much uh, one one person uh, you know can 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 produce, uh, sort of to uh, prevent uh, emergence of monopoly. Right? So they're not uh, in principle sort of against private property, but uh, uh, you know, the private property that could exist in their vision is, has to be limited and sort of cannot uh, in- interfere with um, you know, the well-being of the community. But um, sort of this centerpiece of economic vision is creation of cooperatives and sort of communal, communal uh, economy. Okay, I'll end it there, but um, I should say, so now this vision of uh, democratic confederalism as Abdullah Ojalan uh, called it, that's the vision that's been implemented in Rojava. It has been implemented since uh, the Syrian um, civil war started and there was an opening for the movement to uh, take uh, control of their own region.
0: Thank you so much for that. I think it really helps paint a, a picture to folks who are curious about the Kurdish struggle and not really understanding. And I think that the question of Syria and the regimes—I think that you that you just listed also Alptekin—can be very confusing to folks. You know, we uh, in 2011 with the Arab uprisings that we saw in in Tunisia, Egypt, and then you know, and they spread all over the place, Libya, Syria, Bahrain. Uh, this was something that empire was definitely not gonna try to, you know, it was not gonna allow. Like it can, you know, I think it caught a lot of people off guard. And, and there were a lot of openings. There are still many openings whenever there's a crisis. Um, but immediately, empire, its regimes, its state regimes really really got involved in in lots of ways that for the left, it ended up causing a lot of fights and confusion. I think that there wasn't really um, an understanding of the realities on the ground and what people themselves were wanting to do. And there was like an imposition of one way, right away, especially from the left in the West In the United States is the one that I think I'm I'm the most familiar with. I imagine, I don't know, maybe Europe also, Uh, but the idea of this Western Western left that believes that the state is sacred and that the territory of the state must be integral and that the head of the state is the one, is the sovereign and should have a say. And so then when, the people started to rise up against their regimes, the state regimes. There was a, there. there was some moments when some of the left was for them and other moments when they were not for them. So they were for them very easily, like when it was against Mubarak in Egypt, who was very much a the number two recipient of aid from the United States after Israel and was very oppressive to Palestinians and to Egyptians themselves. But when it comes, when it came to Syria, and like it did with Libya, Libya had Gaddafi, Syria has uh, Bashar al-Assad, both um, Gaddafi was very much uh, critical in words of, of, of neoliberalism and capitalism. Um, if you look at his policies though, it, it didn't really match up. And also uh, with Bashar al-Assad, very much critical of Zionism, very pro-Palestine, except that when you looked at the history of Syria with the Palestinian people, Uh, It has been really bloody and really oppressive, uh, but the lip service has really paid off dividends, really great dividends to a lot of the Arab regimes when it comes to uh, speaking out against the West, except that their actions very much model a lot of what the West does, um, even with its own local flavor, let's say. It's still very much a top-down oppressive uh, situation. And arguably a nation state is that, that's the structure of the nation state. It's not just the Arab regime, it's the structure. I think we can argue of all nation states is a top-down model and Marxism-Leninism very much matches up to this idea in terms of uh, not just an armed struggle, but the idea that there's going to be an elite chosen, either it's a party or intellectuals or or whatever, who are going to be the ones that tell everybody what revolution is like. And that is uh, surprisingly to me, as someone very involved in autonomous from below movements, it's surprisingly still very much the, I think in the United States, the the left, that is uh, most of the left by default is very top-down. And so then there's a lot of confusion when it comes to movements that rise up against regimes that have an anti-western or anti-imperialist rhetoric. And and so thank you so much for the the background that you gave and also for um, for pointing to like this shift in the Kurds themselves being stateless people, wanting a state, I mean that's how the world is governed, and then deciding actually, that's not what we want. We want something else. And, and in that something else, this democratic confederalism of Ojalan that you mentioned, Anya, in that something else, it, it allows us a possibility to also address these other contradictions that we have. And patriarchy is one of the big ones and ecology mm-hmm. is one of the big ones. And, you know, in so much of the left, we talk about the worker or, or and the worker is usually male or like, Or we're talking about class and we don't want to talk about gender or race or sexuality or any of these other kinds of um, these oppressive impositions on the ways that we should be. So it's really exciting to see a movement who you would think would demand a state now saying we we want something else. And maybe that's what we need for the time that we're in now, maybe before things could have been different and maybe a state would have would have helped we don't know but for the time that we're in right now this this democratic confederalism this it's like a more networked kind of politics yeah um mm-hmm. rather than a containerized politics and i think about the work that you're doing with the emergency committee for Roja which is which is itself a network uh, itself is it's like I don't know if it's a solidarity organization um, is if that's what you all refer yeah mm-hmm. a solidarity yeah. organization that itself is also living a, a, this new structure of what of 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 organizing and I wonder if you can you can maybe talk about that like what is the ECR like when when did you start why did you start and how more importantly do you organize and like you mentioned study groups Anya and we're going to have um the website, the Facebook page, and you have a YouTube channel. Uh, we'll have that all on the show notes, but it's defendrojava.org is the website. And from there, you can find a lot of, a lot of the other materials that you all share. But yeah, please, if you can share about what the Immersive Committee for Rojava is, its beginnings, and again, really importantly, how you organize.
2: Maybe I'll begin and then I'll click can you share. From your experiences, you joined uh, a bit more recently compared to me. So, emergency committee for Rojava um, was founded in 2018 uh, in response to the Turkish occupation of Afrin, which Alpikin mentioned, one of the um, areas that's currently occupied by Turkey. And uh, really, I think what prompted uh, the founding of this organization was the lack of publicity, right, for the fate of Kurds uh, in this part of the northern uh, part of Syria. Um, and But then, of course, uh, you know, one thing is to look at the mainstream media and, uh, you know, when they second occupation, uh, second invasion by Turkey took place uh, uh, after Trump gave a green light to Turkey, then the Kurds sort of came to the foreground and got a lot of attention from mainstream media, right? But, you know, when there is no (laughs) occupation, uh, uh, which is uh, allowed by president that we oppose, right? Uh, And I mean, the liberal mainstream media, right? the Kurds sort of fall out, out of the picture. But then the problem is not just with the, for us has not been just with the mainstream uh, politics and media, but also with the left here, kind of, um, we've came, we came to realization that the left, sort of this, uh, however you want to um, you know, define or identify it, but different strengths of the left uh, are quite uh, you know, inward looking and uh, understandably, right, uh, we've just, uh, Sort of uh, gone through um, um, uh, four years with Trump, uh, and of course, uh, that uh, required kind of mobil- mobilization on the, I mean, required or um, prompted a lot of mobilization and concern. We've had uh, Black Lives Matter um, upsurge, uh, pandemic, etc. cetera. Uh, but still, I mean, we feel that uh, there is not, you know, there should be more. Um, uh, should be more um, interest uh, in the international solidarity. Like, uh, no matter how dire the situation is here in the United States, we cannot just abandon those struggles. We cannot close our eyes to those struggles that uh, uh, are happening elsewhere, especially when our own government that claims to represent us is involved in uh, uh, various uh, distractive uh, ways. So, in any case, um, so the Emergency Committee uh, for Rojava. We have. I mean, I like to frame our activities um, using this Zapatista terminology. That we work both uh, from uh, above, right, politics from above, but also politics from below. So we try to target both the you kind know, of representative politics of the United States uh, um, by um, kind of, um, calling our Congress people, right. Uh, Writing resolutions uh, and sending them to to Congress, uh, people who may be, you know, uh, may sponsor uh, something uh, good for Rojava um, through those channels. But we also try to um, do a lot of outreach, a lot of education, a lot of exchanges with um, the um, leftist and progressive uh, uh, forces within this country who, um, you know, do not. focus uh, specifically on this kind of traditional representative politics but' also trying to create uh, alternatives here right and those uh, I guess our you know main audience uh, although you know we try to cast our nets uh, quite broadly because we think the uh, model of Rojava revolution is uh, I mean very fruitful to think with and to learn from and uh, uh, that that's the the rationale uh, behind our you know, outreach efforts uh, to the broader left. Um, maybe I'll take in how we organize precisely.
1: <laughs> uh, well, uh, it is mostly through the committees, as typical for this kind of organization. The committees, you know, outreach, media, the, the common ones usually. And there is also a steering committee, which is basically the founding members of ECR. And they are expanding right now. They are just taking another member. I think Uh, one of the comrades is joining the steering committee right now. And we have been talking about how do we do decision-making, you know, the same things we talked about with Zapatistas for also for a very, very very long time. (laughs) So um, one important thing in, all these Kurdish organizations, the revolutionary ones around uh, PKK, PJK, PYD, all those political parties around democratic confederalism has always been co-chairs. There is no, never a single person leading anything, be it just a, facilitating a meeting or being a representative against the state, talking to the state, dealing with the organs of the state, there are always co-chairs, they are different genders. So that, that, that's, I would say, definitely a very, very important, a key change if I compare how our movements worked 30 years ago, 40 years ago that's a significant change. It didn't exist before. <laughs> Although women have been always involved in these organizations and also in leadership roles from the beginning, but this enforcing a gender equality as far as co-chairing things, you know, throwing the ball back and forth and take, taking the same role with people of different gender. This is new, relatively new, like already almost 30 years ago, (laughs) but it's it's relatively new in terms of history. And uh, also one other thing which I was thinking about when I knocked on the door, I actually met Anya at our Encuentro in (laughs) Auckland. but I have been connected to the many of the same people we know through Nevros celebrations in New York City because Nevros, the Kurdish New Year, is a big celebration of resistance, also, which takes place the uh, the equinox, the 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 spring equinox. So, and uh, but face to face connections, me being in Ohio, was quite difficult. So that that's how I started, you know, using the social media connections, and once a year going to New York City, showing up there, <laughs> talking to people, and then. Also, we had another group trying to create support for Rojava, which with the COVID basically fell apart. And then I said, you are looking for volunteers. I'm going to knock on the door again. <laughs> so that's how I ended up and you know, starting to get involved with committees, starting to help with the work. And I think that, that networking part, creating connections, using different means of communication, especially in our times where this is getting quite difficult because of the pandemic going on and escalating every three months, four months whatever, going up and down. It is difficult. It has been difficult to organize. I'm going to be very open about that and uh, I think we, we have been able to keep it going. That's also good news <laughs> and even probably grow a little bit through different channels. And I, I'm really looking forward to, to do more, also connecting to other groups, probably local groups. I just connected with a local group here, creating a autonomous university or political education, which I know Kiki, you are a lot involved with that kind of stuff. So they actually know you. <laughs> so, you know, we are, we, we are creating these connections and trying to grow our resistance Locally, regionally, but also really globally, because we are connected to the entire world. Is my my feeling through different people. If you go like as they say, you know, six people, and then you are at the other end of the world, maybe connecting to somebody in even China. Possibly, <laughs> it's not impossible. <laughs> so I'm very excited about working more with ECR and the Zapatistas at the same time, and we will see how it goes.
0: <laughs> you know, you, you make me think a lot about the ways that we're organizing, and as disclosure, Anya, Altikin and I are part of a network called Agrietas del Norte that is a network of, of uh, adherence to the Zapatistas Six Declaration, which came out in 2005, which was just a, a, a proposal, like who's down to create something else because this isn't working. That's basically the sixth declaration, yeah. <laughs> something else. And uh, the something else largely does look like it's working from below and to the left. So from below, not trying to be like a, a, a top down or op- it's, it's anti-domination and it's also anti-capitalist. And, and then the yes is whatever the yes is going to look like in your geography. And that can look different even within a network. So... It sounds like with the ECR, just like us in Greta's, um, and also with Capitalism, Nature, Socialism Journal, everyone is spread out everywhere, and we have our different geographies and our different contexts. And it's it, as you're and and the way that we even organize. I, I know with uh, Capitalism, Nature, Socialism, and and Greta's, and it sounds like with also ECR, like we organize in a way that. Is, is very respectful. It's not about uh, congealing power. It's about really br- uh, bringing people into their strengths and to their powers with all of the beautiful difference that we, that we have. And in thinking about that, I think a lot about how maybe that's a big disconnect that exists in the left when it comes to the left that calls itself anti-imperialist Uh, so it's anti-US government intervention, rightfully so, thank you, yes, absolutely, that's like basic we need, Um, but then what that ends up looking like is their actively active support or complete silence, uh, support of oppressive regimes elsewhere or silence of those oppressive regimes elsewhere if they say that they are also anti-imperialist or if they not even say that but the the united states doesn't like them for like i don't know if russia has ever said it's it's anti-imperialist but it doesn't have to because the united states line is that it's supposedly against russia and so then therefore the anti-imperialist left has to be pro-russia it's like this really strange uh understanding of the way that politics works and i wonder if the geography, the mental geography that we have is just so different that maybe that's what makes sense to them. So when, when the geography that they carry or w- when all, any of us carry this geography where the space of politics is this, the, the nation state is the space of politics and that's where you begin. That's a starting off point. And then you go forward, then I can totally under- understand how Anti-imperialist leftists, especially white leftists, who are very, very careful to 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 not want to be imperialists, like they don't want to even have a voice in any other struggle happening in the world, because their struggle for them is making the United States not an imperialist force. That's like their struggle, and then but then to me, like that geography closes off a different way of organizing, which is this from below networked Mm -hmm. geography of movements anywhere that they are, it doesn't matter where they are, as long as we share like in principles against domination, and we're fighting against uh, ecological destruction, capitalism, racism, patriarchy, then, uh, then we can connect and we can organize but for a geography that is more like 20th century geography of politics, that it's all about states, I think that's when it makes it really difficult for a lot of the left to even consider joining up or even being in solidarity with a struggle from below if that's going to be a a struggle like Rojava sadly, which is a struggle that uh, has all of these players, not just Assad, who says he's anti-Zionist, but also Iran and Russia that's, that, mm-hmm. that people assume are anti-imperialist and therefore must be good. They like jump from one to another without any, with all evidence to the contrary, actually. Um, so there's this, there's this confusion. So just, just, it's just something that I've been thinking about in, in terms of what is this disconnect that we're finding on the left? the way that you've just described, the way that the ECR organizes with co-chairs, and it's like it's like organizing uh, in, in our groups, in our movements, the ways that we actually want the world to be, like right now, yeah. not waiting, but making it right now. And I wonder, with the two of you who have experience with that, like how does that make you feel uh, in movement work in, in, in a way that might be different from other ways that you, you have quite a bit of experience doing movement work in other contexts. And Optic, and you mentioned your experience over decades. And, and I wonder if you might be able to say, like, what is it that is an attraction for you uh, with that, with organizing in this from below networked kind of way?
2: I can, I'll start this time. Um... Uh, so, for me, i mean, organizing from below and building alternatives, as you said, building something new here and now, rather than waiting, right, till the old powers are overthrown, is that's what attracts me personally. And um, in my, you know, just personal experience, I often Find myself in situations talking to like regular regular folks uh, who are not involved in politics much or even with my students uh, you know when i teach sociology um talking to them you know about all the you know faults of the current systems and a lot of times people recognize that a lot of things are wrong and do not work as they you know are expected to work but uh, the end point for them is, well, this is how we are. This is how human beings are. You know, we are just greedy, selfish beings, and we need this state that will regulate us and make sure we don't kill each other, right? Or capitalism is just the best we can do. And, and that's why I think like Zapatistas, what they've been building in the last, has it been 28 years now? Okay. I'll, I'll calculate that later, or Rojava and they have uh, been uh, you know, doing their uh, projects since 2011, which is also quite long time uh, for this, uh, um, for this uh, type of initiative. Um, I think they provide us real existing alternatives that we can use as models and from which we can also learn what works, what doesn't work. So also in our own organizing and i have to say like ecr when we just when we just formed it it was quite an ad hoc there was no conversations about structure because we were just 10 people in the room we were all in the same place that was before the pandemic so it was quite ad hoc but then as we started attracting more and more people, you know, we started conversations about how we can structure ourselves so that we actually uh, uphold the principles of the Rojava revolution in our own work. And that's an ongoing conversation, uh, as altkin mentioned. Uh, and now we're sort of in, in different circumstances since the pandemic pushed us to be more international with all the events online. So it, that added sort of additional considerations. But yeah, in any case, um, definitely, sort of trying to leave those principles to the degree that we can obviously you know we are not organizing communal assemblies right, although some of us, you know, may may do that, but as part of their own group or initiative, uh, but as ECR like we're more of a network rather than a communal. Um, project.
1: And uh spinning my thoughts around that a little bit too and going back, you know. When I got involved with politics, it was in the high school years, like uh, about 14 years old, maybe the first time. Actually, I got into trouble because I mentioned the word Kurdish as a language, Kurdish as a people, which is not the same in Turkish, (laughs) and the name Kurdistan, the, the land in an essay I wrote, and I was called to the assistant principal and, you know, why, why did you write this, and, you know, so that, that was kind of the starting point of my political work, getting more conscious about, oh, they are reacting to this, you know, you, you get into trouble for just using words <laughs> or just writing something.
0: The African, and, uh, where did you, where did you go to high school that that was so explosive?
1: This was in Turkey, but it was a German school. The thing is that there are schools created by the colonizers in Turkey during the Ottoman Empire. Ottoman Empire was in, is like a soft colony, right? They were, there was something like IMF. Actually, I went to school in that very building, the building for the administration of the Ottoman debt. so yeah and then uh, going from there coming to Germany after the military coup in 1980 I was in Germany starting from 81 to 96 and I, I was very involved with the Kurdish movement in my college years in Germany and the seeds I think of this decentralized organization, a little bit anarchist-leaning, a little bit more chaotic, although a lot of us were at that point strictly Marxist-Leninist. Soviet Union is the perfect country and it's, we, we strive to be just like them. You know, we are talking 1980s, so it still exists in some way. <laughs> but I think the seeds of that, because how we conducted meetings, I, I remember all that, it wasn't very hierarchical it was very closely connected in a in a very friendly way which i'm still experiencing today but that was the natural way of how people from our region simply behave it's left to our own devices and you will you you will see that it's it's more like a community thing it's more sharing things it's more welcoming strangers what we called strangers at that time (laughs) so and i think that those seeds were already there we just needed to put it in words you know and organize around that change the mentality of oh without a nation state we can't be free nonsense We, we don't need a nation state to be free people were free without nation states For if you look at, you know, human history way back, a quarter million years, (laughs) they lived without nation states (laughs) and they were all free. (laughs) A lot more probably than today because nation states is actually by its design being a part of capitalist economy in our days for sure. Even as a, maybe if it still has Feudalistic structures in it, which in our region still existed in the 19th century and early 20th century, they are really falling apart now, but they they still existed. And they can be a mix of these things, living side by side at the same time. And that's actually where we are coming from, I think. Democratic confederalism doesn't say, let's destroy nation states. We, We realize very much, and Öcalan writes about this, nation states can exist side by side with a different democratic society, which is not part of the nation state. That's not impossible to do. And that's what Rojava is actually trying to do now. And partially they are being criticized for that because they are saying, "Oh, why are, why, why are you living with the garrison right in the middle of Kamishlo or Heseke? It's a such government, you know? It's a contradiction. It is a contradiction. But what is the price to pay trying to eradicate that garrison? Are we willing to pay, pay that price? And is that really going to change anything in Syria? Very likely not. <laughs> Assad will still be there. We should see other ways to work on that part of the problem rather than just getting rid of one garrison maybe. They, could they do it? Possibly they could. but. there will be a price for that, right? They are gonna come back and take revenge. So that's one thing which I see a lot also in Turkey, in the Kurdish regions happening because these regions are the region of, it's in Italian, it's called vendetta. You take blood revenge is what it's called literally in Turkish or in Kurdish. If you kill someone, that family's youngest kid kills another one from your family. (laughs) And they are not doing that anymore. They are saying this is the wrong way to go. We should stop this because it creates only more blood. So when a lot of things happened in the, between 2015 and now in Turkey also, with the dirty war escalating again after 2015, the ceasefire, the unilateral ceasefire announced by PKK, ended in 2015. So, and Since then, there is, has been an escalation of, uh, you know, armed conflict. And they are saying we are not taking revenge. We are not going to take vengeance. And I, I see the same thing happening here in our region with the Zapatistas, for example. They're moving to no, that's, don't don't take revenge. We are not doing the same thing they are doing. So. And I am hopeful, I am, I am a total peacemaker in that respect, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not for war, I don't believe in just wars, I don't, wars always hurt, in a war there are only losers, you, you can't really win a war, you can win battles maybe. <laughs> but what, what is the price we are paying by, you know, fighting a war, an armed war, so, and I, I see those changes going on and trying to stay hopeful. Uh, we, we can probably create peace by showing that, you know, another world is possible. We can create other structures within the existing nation states and show them, hey, if you do it this way, it works better. Why, why don't we try this?
0: You know how you're talking right now, i in on this question of what is the price we have to pay if we do X or Y? Like that's That, I think, is something the left can really learn a lot about is this question of of moving strategically guided by goals and values and principles. Right. And that I think it's really difficult for people to think about how do we have a different world if this is the one that exists right now. And what you're what you just described is. Well, we create it in little bits and pieces as much as we can and intensifying as much as they can. And of course, we still need to, to articulate with the dominant world, like, you know, yeah. like Anya, you were saying, like we have to articulate from the above, but doing that strategically, like really being conscious that when we articulate from, with the above, we can, get, we can get co-opted very, very easily. Mm-hmm. And I think that movements know this even more than leftist talking heads commentators do. Because when you are confronted with a life and death situation, and there is a tool that you might be able to turn to that just has disgusted you for your your entire life. Maybe that's elections, or maybe that's lobbying a congressman or something like that, right? But that tool, can make you stronger the next day if you, as long as the tool doesn't use you, yeah, right? And so then this is, I think, if we can talk more about about strategy and tactics and also the intelligence of movements themselves, I think it can really assist us in trying to figure out solidarity, solidarity question, which I think became very fraught on the left when it came to Rojava, because Rojava received assistance from the U.S., for a moment. And then a lot of leftists, anti imperialist leftists, are like, what's going on? We can't support this, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and, and what was really great about that um, moment for me is that I was challenged. I was challenged by Syria in ways that I haven't been challenged before, and by Libya also in ways I hadn't been challenged before. And I found it personally just really uncomfortable. When people would ask me, "So, how do you? What position do you take on intervention or non-intervention with the with NATO?" And and for sure, just immediately, my thoughts were always about, "Well, shit! Like I'm over here trying to organize against against empire, and yet over here, these this this movement or this these compas are over here uh, turning to those forces so that they can live another day, like." How am I going to make that? Like, that's not my decision to make. Like, that, that's something that we have to trust movements on that they know if you ally with the U.S., for example, you're going to be betrayed. And they know I, I, from, from everything that I have read about Rojava, is that they knew that they knew it was going to happen and that was still the, the, the decision that they had to make in order. And then the only thing that you can really pray for is well let's just hope they can withstand the betrayal that they're ready for the betrayal and how can we support each other, so we can all withstand that that kind of betrayal. Uh, but, but I think it was a conversation that many people didn't even want to have. Uh, And I wonder, is this a conversation that you all confront, like the the US intervention with Rojava, like, uh, do you confront that in the work that you do? And how do you address that?
2: Yes, definitely. It's like an elephant in the room whenever we <laughs> bring up Rojava before we taste it, before we know who the audience is, right? I almost feel like whenever I, I need to speak about Rojava, like the first sentence is, I have to say, yes, they do accept uh, U.S. Uh, military support. And still there are reasons why we think we should support them, right? Because it's not black and white. And I think the left here in the West has to realize that any kind of radical transformation, any revolution or whatever you want to call it, it's not going to happen in a vacuum. Like there'll be, as you mentioned, Kiki, there'll be forces that will be attacking it. And Rojava's people found themselves in a life and death situation, as you put it, literally, right? When ISIS was uh, um, attacking and occupying uh, their territories and, you know, enslaving women and uh, children. I mean, it was just such a... um, Terrible situation that they were in. And there were some, some of, uh, public figures, public left, uh, well known leftists in the United States who would publicly say, well, they should just, you know, they should just die, basically. Like, no, they shouldn't uh, take uh, US support, right? Because US provided air support during the Kobani um, resistance, which Alptekin mentioned. Um, so you're saying right i mean uh, <laughs> who are we like to make the decision and uh, you know to decide on their fate uh but in any case i mean yeah that has made our work more difficult in terms of reaching out to different organizations and groups and oftentimes you know when we talk to regular mem- members of an organization they're sympathetic and they realize that you know this is real politics, right? And uh, the geopolitical situation is so complicated. It's not just the United States; it's also regional powers. It's also other imperialist powers like Russia, right? And Turkey is a NATO uh, country, so uh, you know if the United States is withdrawn, there is still Turkey there who receives U.S. military aid and arms and technology of warfare, right? Um, so. I mean, usually people agree that yes, just advocating the withdrawal of US troops from Rojava is not gonna make the situation better. I mean, it's gonna just lead to a genocide by Turkey, of course, but sort of on an organizational level, a lot of uh, groups uh, are resistant, kind of committing to that uh, argument and line and to support of Rojava and that Has been difficult, right? A lot of uh, groups just won't do uh, any work with us or any work uh, related to Rojava when, uh, you know, whenever solidarity is needed. Um, But, you know, I mean, uh, in the beginning, um, Alptekin, you know, when he gave the historical picture, the situation, the current situation is a result of the Western powers' involvement in the region. So we especially since we are mostly based in the United States and our our activities are mostly based here you know we emphasize the role of the United States uh, going back to the um, breakup of the Ottoman Empire and the role the United States played then when the region was being carved up and when the Kurds were denied statehood you know United States despite promising self-determination they did uh, back uh, the decision to Uh, not give a state to Kurds, but uh, leave them divided between uh, the new uh, nation states, I mean, the the new territories, new countries that were uh, under uh, British and French mandate and then became independent states. And then, uh, you know, we know the United States' role in um, creating uh, radical Islamist uh, movements, right, out, out of which ISIS... Um, uh, is one uh, example uh, and which still exists in the region and uh, Rojava still needs to confront those. Uh, Again, as I mentioned, uh, Turkey is a NATO country. United States supports Turkey militarily. Uh, So, you know, there is a a very complex web in which the United States in so many ways is involved and supports uh, local regional dictators, uh, be they the one or others um, and benefits from whatever destruction takes place there. So we being here, we have to take responsibility, but not an easy way out. Just say, oh, all the US troops out, right? Because it may work in other cases. No, like you have to have a more concrete uh, analysis of the situation and see what the consequences would be of that and what consequences would be of keeping those few hundreds of US troops there, right? Which can serve as a deterrent of an invasion. Uh, not necessarily, but uh, they potentially can be a deterrent. And as you said, Kiki, the movement is well aware of what they are dealing with. And they know that the United States doesn't support their revolution, that they have their own geopolitical interest in the region, that's why they're there. And that's why for now they're providing support. You know, you never know when they will withdraw it. And they do not want the United States to stay there forever. They, in fact, they don't, you know, military support is not even the most important kind of support they ask. They ask for some sort of international recognition that would make them safer, right? As you said, like, you know, they have to, they're not, they don't exist in vacuum. They have to deal with the existing state system, nation state system, with the, you know, because they are under attacks, Turkey, Assad, Russia, you know, you name it. Um, so, you know, they just want some guarantees of safety where they can continue building their revolution, revolutionary project. Um, otherwise, you know, they're not, you know, it's not just, it's just not going to happen.
1: Yeah, I would like to add one more. Geopolitical factors, which is, I think, quite important. Right now, if you look at the map of the area controlled by the autonomous administration of northeastern Syria, which is commonly known as Rojava, actually they moved away from that name because Rojava means West in Kurdish, and they wanted to have a more neutral name. There's one reason for that being if you look at the three cities in the south they are controlling Tapka, Raqqa and their resort those are not Kurdish cities. They are all Arab cities. And they were liberated from the control of IS. And that was also approved by the US. They let them do it. And they gave them actually air support to get that done. So that's probably one of the reasons I am making an assumption here. I don't know for sure why Turkey can't still just get that 50 kilometer line, because eradicating the autonomous administration of Northeast Syria would be a problem then for that region still controlled by them. Because if if, if you basically take the Kurds away from from that picture, they they are gonna escape somewhere, right? They are gonna move somewhere. That's what happened in Afrin, about 150,000 people simply fled. They are in the region known as Shekpa. This is between Afrin and Aleppo. Huge group of uh, refugees living there right now. And, they don't, they, and I know these thoughts are being played between the powers there right now between Russia and US. And there is a balance between Russia and US also in this region right now, very delicate balance. They are patrolling Kobani area together, sometimes not really hand in hand together. But one time, a you know, Russian tank passes. And then the next time the like, US Humvee passes, same street. Same. And still under the control of let's call it Rojava for to, to make it simple <laughs> shorter. But I'm talking always about the autonomous administration where I'm talking about Rojava. So that that's actually the name we should use officially. So and we, we can't just eradicate this. And there is the question of Idlib. Idlib is still an enclave of uh, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham. Basically, whatever is remained from the IS still lives there. And these people are actually refugees. We should recognize them as refugees. I'm, I'm not opposed to that. They are refugees. They, they, they came there from other regions in Syria. So that's an open question too, because if you look at that map, it's surrounded by Turkish forces, Iranian forces with Assad, and Russian forces. They are all really side by side all around Italy. <laughs> they, are, they are sitting there and waiting. And this, this is you know, a powder cake waiting to explode like the entire country of Syria, the nation state of Syria still is a powder cake. It, it's, it's very, very delicate balance right now holding it just barely in place. And I don't know, I don't, I, I don't see any other solution than creating a Confederate, federate, some kind of a structure, which doesn't continue the old nation state of we are Arabs and nobody else is welcome here. Which they didn't literally live because from my childhood, I remember my Ant was one of the people they call smugglers. We call it small <laughs> across the border trade. <laughs> and they were always friendly. She, she used to go there every month and bring stuff and sell, sell in Turkey. You know, she used to go to Aleppo from the Turkish city of Antep. So there was no border there. Right now there is a wall which looks just like the Berlin wall. It's, it's horrible. It's I, I don't know how many feet high and concrete and razor wire and moats in, in front of it. It's, it's, it's horrible. It's, it's, it looks exactly like the Berlin wall more or less if, if, if you look at the pictures of it. Turkey built a hundreds of kilometers long wall across the Syrian border which was completely permeable before. It was an open border. People just walked through it. And that's how the people in our region used to live before. There were no, you know, set borders. We lived together all these hundreds of years. <laughs> and that's that's what I am longing for still. But look at the war zone map, right? It's, it's not possible today. And that's where our tactical thoughts come in. How do we build networks of trust? How do we build some way of consensus maybe between the powers involved because we can't just simply ignore them there is no way of ignoring them they are there <laughs> and some of these powers have nuclear missiles <laughs> you know th- those are the people we are talking to so how how do we create a solution a peaceful solution for our region at the end that's what we are after and that's our good news we are trying to communicate at the end of the day.
0: You know, for me, if I may, I we have this question of of the left and why why struggles like Rojava are important for the left to learn about and not just learn about, but to be challenged by and to ultimately support if they truly are left. And, but it, it again, it's gonna depend on how we define left and how we define right and on all of that. And and what you were talking about, like that, the situation on the ground is so important to know about uh, rather than just making like these sweeping statements about what's going on because that's what happened in the Philippines or that's what happened in Guatemala or that's what happened, this is what's gonna happen everywhere. If we're talking about actual movements on the ground, every situation is going to be different and, and networking together and, and, and getting to know each other and working together in that way is really going to lean on ethics and values like these these more these ways of relating not necessarily concrete specificities but ways of relating that, that can that they can apply anywhere, whether you're in the countryside, whether you're in the city. Like, how are we treating each other? What kind of world do we want, and how do we treat each other in that world? And I think about that a lot, and I've been thinking about it in uh, with the Taliban victory in Afghanistan in August, in you know, 20 years later. The quote unquote terrorists are the ones that win. They beat the empire. Not only did they beat the empire, but now they're with the empire. Like they're working together, they're gaining this recognition. And, you know, we can talk about uh, the Taliban being an indigenous people or, or population uh, uh, battling for their homelands against empire. And that's a thousand percent correct. And we need to talk about the proposals that we have when we're oppressed because not of all not all of our proposals in fact sadly most of our proposals uh, most of our proposals are turning out that we join the monsters that we were fighting and we become the monsters that we were fighting and so in thinking about rojava i think about the importance of here's an experiment of us trying to not become the monsters that we've been struggling against. And that to me needs to be a central question of the left. What is our yes? We know what our nos are, but what, what are our yeses? Maybe there's many yeses. And, and how do we not replicate what it is that, that we're fighting? If we look at like the region, Israel to me is just like the, the easy embodiment example of the wretched of the earth now becoming the wretched of empire just in trying to survive and just trying to feel safe in this world. But the question of why does this world not make us feel safe? What is it about this? We're like, that, that's not the question that we're having. Instead, we're just looking at players at different characters and pointing fingers rather than like this bigger question of what is it about this world? And, and let's look at that and let's build another world where we can do something very different. And these these experiments as as, as messy as they're going to be and they're always, always messy. It doesn't matter. The Zapatistas are probably like the, the one that people think have it all together. It's messy too. Like all of us are messy, <laughs> uh, you know, but we got, but we're trying and that's the thing. We're, as long as we're trying and in that, in that, in, in those tries that we're okay with things not working out, right? Because we're going to learn and we're going to do something different and we're going to share our word and spread it with other movements and see what it is that they're trying and what it is that they're seeing. How is empire... Unfolding where you're at. How is your resistance looking? You know, and exchanging these kinds of uh, conversations, ideas, analyses, critiques with each other, and and it is a very different kind of movement that's happening that you're a part of, that we're a part of. That, for example, the Autonomous University Online of Political Education that you mentioned a few minutes back, Altigen, like they're a part of. And much of this is underground. Much of it you don't see, like the Autonomous University doesn't even like us that we're even talking about them right now. <laughs> <laughs> Cause it's all word of mouth. Like you get, you, you get, you get to be part of them, you know, that's a word of mouth. <laughs> um, but the, it, but a lot of this movement is happening and, and it's, it, it's really wonderful when we do come up above ground a little bit, just to let us let each other know that we're here and maybe even like working with the above. I think about that. How do we do that strategically? I, I, I listened to a pan-Africanist um, political educator named Diallo Kenyatta and I really like the way that he puts it like with electoral politics. It's like, we need to be cold, distant and calculating. Don't fall in love with any politicians or any of this. Like three reasons to engage. One is for harm reduction. Two is for resource extraction, and three is for subversion, like if you're gonna subvert the status quo. Those are very, very clear reasons why to engage in that above. And I think about that third one with subversion. Once in a while, we need to be out there Uh, in this dominant world, talking about these underground movements and what it is that we're doing, maintaining as much privacy as as, as we need, of course, because everyone needs, uh, they they need to decide what they want public Mm -hmm. and what they don't. And and just to let people know, because so much of the conversation that's had on the left is left up to these questions of human nature. Well, humans have always been this way. We're always going to kill each other is what we're told in school, Right or this is just the best way that there is or isn't another way. And and a lot of that comes from this indoctrination that there is no other way. And so then the imagination then needs to to come into play and that can be really difficult. And so then here we don't need your imagination to come into play. Look at Rojava, things are happening. You don't need to imagine it, you know, just like in Chiapas and so many other other places, little, little bits of places. And I think that that's that's the importance of of the work that you all are doing in amplifying the the voice of of Rojava's struggle, uh, especially in a region where, you know, what's so worrisome with the Taliban victory is that this is going to be modeled by other movements in struggle. Like what the Taliban did, they came out victorious. So that's what we're going to do. But it just ends up just doing the the same thing over just looks different, you know, and and we see that um, in all of our movements, we see that this idea that we want recognition from our oppressor, so we're going to do what our oppressor says we need to do. We're going to do politics the way we're told we're supposed to do politics, and that's going to keep us safe. This question of safety, I think, is so important, and so then pointing to other struggles, and what it is that they're doing and all the different ways that they make us feel safe. So just having an, an, an anti-patriarchal stance is already a huge one uh, to have, especially in, the, in, the, in that region. And, and also an ecological stance in the moment that we're in of climate collapse, climate catastrophe, ecological, I mean, we can, uh, words cannot cannot adequately Uh, label this moment that we're in and uh, the struggle for for Rojava in addition to being very participatory by women and being explicitly anti-patriarchal is also as you mentioned earlier a very has a very ecological lens on it and I wonder if you might be able to talk about that because it's also something that doesn't matter if you're on the left or right this is this is something that's that affects everybody and everyone's trying who's paying attention is really trying to to look for ideas and analyses of what to do in this really dire situation. You
2: wanna start
1: off again? Was that a question?
0: I... Yeah, if you can just maybe talk about, just maybe share, uh, would you be able to share a bit about the, the ecological lens that they have and how much of that they're able to put into practice it's such a big, big territorial question, the question of ecology, it's, it's yeah. literally the planet. It's not just a little corner of the world that we're in. And so then doing uh, ecological work, uh, the scale of it is is—is that enormous. And, mm-hmm. and I wonder what it looks like in, in Rojava, if there are limitations to it or what is it that they need yeah. in order to, to buttress it?
1: Okay. I will talk a little bit like, I will start uh, at the, uh, how the communes, the cantons, the communes are organized because it's a confederal structure. I know that has a negative taste in the U.S. context. We hate the Confederacy, but confederalism it itself is not a bad thing. <laughs> it's actually a good thing. <laughs> so I think we need we need to move away from the U.S. Confederacy of the nineteenth century and. Look, look at it differently, maybe from that I'm, I'm going to give another example from Europe, Switzerland, confederatio Helvetica is their name in, in Latin. <laughs> and they have different languages, different religions in the same country. And they are also, they have a more grassroots type democracy. And that's why the same Names were used creating this confederacy. I'm gonna call it that. With the cantons, the Switzerland uses the same names for the regional units in that country. And they basically govern themselves. Uh, Same applies to the autonomous administration in Rojava. There is what's called Tevdem, Tevgera Jivaka Democratic, movement for a democratic society. The smallest organizational unit is the communes. the communes, same word in Kurdish. These can be centered around women's groups, ethnic groups, or any mix of them, depending on where they are, where they are located. And seven or eight of these elect representatives to neighborhood or city councils. And each of these communes have a cooperative. And that, that's basically the connection to the ecological movement because there is no private property as far as land goes. The land is owned by the cooperatives. And it's also, you know, the whole agriculture, livestock, handicrafts, catering, food production, it's all organized through these cooperatives. And this has been lived before actually in Palestine. There was a leftist Israeli movement of the kibbutzim. This has been lived in the earlier days of the Soviet Union, the call movement. And they, they, they are all centered around the same idea. We, we don't want private property when it comes to the means of production. And agriculture Is a big part of it in agriculture not only to produce food but also the stewardship of the earth and that's a big difference between the late 19th early 20th century movements which neglected that part to some degree and how we approach it be it here in the western hemisphere the indigenous peoples or in Rojava in our region. We we take a different approach. We would like to keep the earth as an intact system. We are part of this planet. That's a planetary view of the things instead of just, oh, we just just take as much as possible from the earth and not give anything back, you know? It's a completely different view of things. So, and there are, right now, Three quarters of all, and this is from four years ago, I have this information, three quarters of all property is under public ownership in the autonomous administration, which is a big part, I think, if you think about other countries, other nation states. And uh, a third of the production is managed directly by the workers' councils. So this all strengthens the protection of the planet of the earth in this region. Where are the problems? When Turkey marched into Afrin, what was one of the first thing they did? They destroyed of hundred thousands of olive trees. Same thing Israel is doing to the Palestinian olive trees. Same thing in the same region. They are just a few hundred miles apart from each other. You know, (laughs) if you look at the map, it's really that close. There's only Lebanon in between and you're in Palestine. (laughs) So, and olives have been a very important crop in our region because of a source of energy, source of food, source of shade. They grow over hundreds of years. Some of those trees are 300, 400, 500 years old. They, They are cutting them down. They are destroying them. It's like it breaks my heart, and they are doing the same thing even in Turkey, in their own country, <laughs> they, are, they are destroying olive trees. One reason behind this is, actually comes from the United States, because uh, when, before, right, right before I was born, this is early 60s, late 50s, United States came with their corn oil and soy oil into our region and turned our completely olive oil-based food system into a corn and soy-based system because they, they said olive oil tastes bad, it's, it's too heavy, you shouldn't eat it, it's not healthy for you. and We know better today, everybody wants to eat olive oil <laughs> because it's a lot better for you. <laughs> so, and you know, all, all that ecological thinking is changing a little bit worldwide, but also changing a lot in the region of Rojava because they are supporting all these earth stewardship-type systems, rebuilding those economies again, self-sustaining. One example is the women's village, Jinwar, for example. There is also an internationalist commune in Derek, I, I have been in contact with them. I have done some translations with them. So I, I, I know a little bit more about, about what they are doing. They are doing a lot of planting and growing things locally, producing their food locally and you know promoting that kind of work. So, and I, as I said, on the dark side, all those powers around them, Turkey is burning the wheat fields every year in Rojava, every single year. And they are blaming on that. They are saying, PKK is burning the wheat fields again. No, it's their fields, you know, (laughs) it's PYD's fields. Why, Why would they burn their own fields? It's like insane, but that's done their propaganda. They are doing the same thing with forest fires in Turkey. This whole area was actually, I I know this is a fact, when the Ottoman Empire, shortly before the Ottoman Empire ended like in the mid 1800s, this area was still heavily forested. It wasn't a desert area, but overuse of lumber, not replanting, neglecting all that and through the colonization, introduction of monocultures in this region, mainly wheat, in Northern Syria, that forest, those forested areas have been destroyed completely, they are gone. And the autonomous administration is trying to do this reforestation also with local trees, which thrive there a lot easier, like olives, for example. So that's my kind of short summary of what I know.
2: (laughs) Anya? We're probably going over time, <laughs> uh, but just very briefly, I don't know, maybe we'll cut some stuff out, and some stuff in. Um, I think talking about ecology brings us back to the question why international solidarity is important because uh, it's just very hard for the people of uh, Rojava, of Northeast Syria to implement their You know, ideals of how a sociological society would be organized into practice when they are under embargo, when they lack resources, they cannot import equipment, right, if they want to build solar panels, how are you going to do it? So we outside of Rojava have to make sure they have access to resources, to technology, um, you know, uh, that they can actually put the ideal into practice.
0: that was really inspiring to hear that they have very consciously a program of non-domination with mama earth not just non-domination with women not just non-domination in the political realm but non-domination just in life it sounds like like where we get our food is such a foundational central point of of how we live and it's so uh, it's so Tied up to our ethics, whether we know it or not, you know, where our food comes from, how we've acquired our food, how we've treated Mama Earth, other beings, other beings along that process, I think says so much about the societies that we live in. And with Rojava, as you've just described, it says a lot about the society that they want. And that kind of commitment, especially when it's something that's so difficult, like the the ecological question that I think is is, is probably more diff- difficult than than the the patriarchal question, even though I think that they're related. I think that they're they're not at all diff- Mama Earth is a, you know, she is a, a woman being dominated if we talk about it in those allegorical gendered terms. Um, it's this question of domination and and the question too of uh, private property is so key just the idea that you can own another living being. It, it, it's already it, it's it's what has caused so much of the death and destruction that we've been living over these last centuries and and it's really inspiring to to know about how the movement in Rojava has been very conscious about. The kind of world that they want and again this a very beautiful experiment that I think in this in this planetary question that we're in it's something that previous generations that the task that we have this this challenge that we have with the situation at this moment is it's a planetary question in ways that it wasn't for previous generations and it's kind of like our task I feel like to figure it out to figure out what to do and not only that, the planetary question of climate, the planetary question, as you mentioned, up again, of nuclear annihilation. And this is the reality that Rojava is experiencing front and center and that we're all experiencing. So when we're talking about the movement work that we do and we talk about maybe armed struggle and that kind of and revolution, we're in a nuclear situation right now that previous generations didn't have to to grapple with as heavily as as ours in these last like 50 years 60 years this last century so it's really inspiring and we really want to thank you both and the entire ECR crew and of course the movement in Rojava for sharing us sharing with us your word uh, letting us know that there is it, it, even in the face of all of this death and destruction, there's still building that is happening. There's still construction that's happening and there isn't a feeling that we've given up or we're giving in and we're becoming just like them. And so thank you so much for, for, the, for, for sharing. I think it's really inspiring and if folks want to learn more, please visit defendrojava.org. The website will be on our show notes. The Kompas also have a Facebook page and they have a YouTube channel. They have study groups. I was part of one of their study groups. It was incredible. It was on the question of grassroots religious practices in Chiapas and Rojava. And, and it's, it was really nice uh, because it, it gave us an opportunity to talk about the question of spirituality and religion, which is something that the left doesn't really like to talk about very much. <laughs> and, and my understanding is your next, your next reading group uh, is going to be on the ideological shifts of, of the movement. And can you tell us a little bit more about when that will be and how folks uh, can, can sign up for it or find you?
2: That will take place on Saturday, January 22nd at 2 p.m. Eastern time, United States. And again, we continue to look comparatively at the Zapatista movement and the Kurdish movement.
0: And if you can't join them for their reading group, or if you're listening to this podcast well past their reading group, uh, then uh, will they be up on your YouTube page like your others, the videos that you make? Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Anya and Optican. It's been such an honor to be here with you and sharing this space. And we'll keep abreast of what's going on in Rojava and what's going on throughout the planet, from below and to the left to see what it is that we can do in this moment that we're in. Thanks so much.